Uh, let's just get ourselves back in his presence again. We've really been there this morning, and um, I think he wants us straight back there again now. So, in fact, you know, sometimes a preacher has something humorous to say at the start to engage you. I'm sorry I don't today. Um, I felt the weight of this a little bit today, and therefore I just think let's get back straight into his presence. We can do it quite quickly. We've been there this morning already. Let's get straight back in. Uh, because he's going to continue, I think, to, to just speak to us and to engage us and to melt our hearts, and that's what we want him to do. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you so much for your unending love for us. We thank you so much that uh, we, are, we are able to be together and to lift your name high and to experience your presence. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are with us. And we pray right now that you would continue to be with us. We thank you that you don't disappear just because we go and get a coffee, but you are with us in the room because we are gathered together in your name. We tell you again right now that that's why we're here. We are here in your name, Lord Jesus, and therefore we take you at your word when you say that when two or three are gathered in your name, you are in the midst. And so we pray you'd be with us now, just as in these few moments we look at your word. We pray that uh, what might be head knowledge would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would be written on our hearts. Uh, because otherwise, anything that we hear this morning will just be words. And if there is spiritual truth to be discerned here, then it can only be discerned by the power of your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come, you'd write your words on our hearts, you'd burn it deep into us, and that we would be, we would be caught up again with the majesty of Almighty God. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are returning to Genesis, and we've reached that point where we are at the story of Noah, um, a story which probably is one of the very few stories in the Bible that is still probably taught in most primary schools. There aren't many Bible stories, I'm sorry to say, these days that make their way into primary schools, but probably Noah still does. And it's a great children's story. You know, it's got all the, it's got all the, um, the right ingredients for a good children's story. It has... It has, um, it has baddies in it, uh, and it has a hero, and a rescue plan, and a boat, and a happy ending with a rainbow. It's, it's a great story to tell children. It's a great story, and you see it in children's Bibles. It's one of the first things that appears in a children's Bible. You turn the page, and there's this big rainbow, and there's the story of Noah. You know it's going to come. And lots of you as children or as parents will have experienced playing with wooden Noah's Arks with a few animals in, and kids love it. But this story, actually, we need to revisit, and so I want you to try and put to the back of your mind all of those peripheral, childish things. The Bible talks about us moving from childish things to becoming mature. And so we're going to look at this story again, and we're probably going to look at Noah over the next two or three weeks, uh, but let's start by reading from Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to start at verse 5, 
and uh, I'm reading from the ESV version of the Bible, and if you can see it, it's going to appear up there, but otherwise, just listen if you don't have your own Bible. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side and make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female." Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort should come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that the Lord commanded him. I said that many of us will be familiar with this story, and the problem with it can be that because it's something we're so familiar with, and because uh, it's become a very famous children's story, uh, that we can very quickly get to the happy ending if we're not careful. But actually, this story starts with something that most of us would probably rather avoid thinking or talking about. You see, most of the animals are all safely in the ark, but let me tell you that there's one that's left outside. It's a massive elephant, and it's in the room. It's a big elephant that's in the room with us that doesn't ever get into the ark. It's God's judgment. We don't like to talk about God's judgment. What we like to do is we like to skirt around this big elephant and we like to talk about God's mercy and God's grace 
and God's love and God's acceptance. And all of those things are wonderful. But what we sometimes do is we forget the elephant in the room. And the elephant in this story that we can very quickly paper over is the elephant of God's judgment, his righteous wrath and judgment. And that's where we're going to be today. We're going to look at God's judgment. So let's start by just looking at the process of how and why God judged the people who were drowned in the flood. Because I don't know about you, but uh, as an adult, what I can do when I get through the childish bit of the story of Noah is I can start thinking about the logistics. And so I think about the story of Noah and think, God, well, how, did he, how did he get them all? Is that, is that um, size of ark big enough for all the animals in the world? Or was it a localized flood? Maybe it was. And, but how did he stop the animals eating each other in there? I can get into, when I'm thinking about the story of Noah, the logistics of it all. And I can miss some of the, the main major points. And I don't want us to miss particularly this one that it starts with, which is God's judgment. So let's look at the process of how and why God judged these people. Was there something particularly bad about them? It sounds as if there was when you read the account, but I wonder. First of all, it says that the Lord sees. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, when I read that, and when I have read that in the past, I must admit that I have thought, wow, things must have been really, really bad back then. This must have been a population who were particularly depraved. Well, perhaps. You see... I think all of us this week, as we have watched the news and heard about that uh, trial that came to an end with Mick and Mairead Philpot, who set light to their own house and in the process murdered their six children, we probably think, well, that's pretty depraved. And certainly the papers, the newspapers, have used words like depraved to describe that type of behaviour. But surely that's an exception in our society. When we look around us, we don't see many people who would go to that length. Do you know what? I think that's because of the restraining hand of God. Let me read you an excerpt from a book called Love Thy Neighbour. This book was written by a man called Peter Mass, and he worked for the Washington Post as a journalist. In the 1990s, he went out to Bosnia and he interviewed a number of people who had been caught up in the civil war where the Serbs and the Croats uh, were, were at war with each other and ethnic cleansing was going on. And he interviewed one guy in a rescue station called Adem. And Adem described how 35 men from his village were rounded up by the Serbs from a neighboring village and they were brutally murdered. And I won't go into the details, it's horrific. And he told the story 
Paul Peter Mass says, he told the story in a whispered mumble. They were killed by Serbs who had been their friends, people who had helped harvest their fields the previous autumn, people with whom they had shared adolescent adventures and secrets and skinny dipping in the Drina River on hot summer days. All of a sudden, seemingly without reason, they had turned into killers. See, the problem can be for us that we live with and work with and relate to people who we just think aren't, well, then surely they're, they're not that bad. In fact, I've, I probably know people in my workplace who are much nicer than I am. They are. They probably, they're probably more generous with their time and they do more good works than I do. I know quite a lot of really, really nice people. I do. And we all do. And it will be so easy for us to just think, well, surely the judgment that came in the days of Noah, they must have been particularly depraved. The problem is that I think those people around me are really nice because I'm judging from my standards. And I'm making a judgment based on what I'm like. And I forget that God says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Listen to what Jesus said about the people who existed at the time of Noah. Now listen, who do these people sound like? Listen to this. Jesus said, For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage up till the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. What does that sound like to you? People who are eating and drinking. Are you planning to have Sunday lunch today? <laughs> Marrying and giving in marriage. We've got people who here who have been given in marriage. We've got people who have just got married not, not long ago, Emma. We've got people who are preparing for marriage, Becca. Do you know what? I realise that I have read that story of Noah and I have painted a picture of those people on the earth at that time as being some sort of depraved horror story. And Jesus says, no, they're like you. They were just like you. God sees. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The Lord grieves. So here's what it says. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. God is not a neutral bystander. So we have just read that God sees. He sees every thought that you have, every action that you have, that you make. And he sees it, but he's not a neutral bystander. Do you know what? Sometimes we can feel that he is. Because, well, he doesn't seem to take much action about it, does he? 
we look at people who seem to get away with stuff in the world and we think, well, God doesn't seem to take a lot of action. Maybe he doesn't really mind that much. Maybe he doesn't really mind that much about my sin because he doesn't seem to move and to act on it very much. The world carries on just as it seems to every day. Nothing changes. The Bible says the rain rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. Nothing seems to happen. Nothing seems to change. And what I can so easily begin to think about my own sin is he doesn't really mind. He doesn't really care. He might see. I can believe that he sees everything. But he doesn't really seem to care. He seems to be happy to brush it. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that he regretted that he'd made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Now, when you read what the commentators say, they say God can't regret things. God, another translation of the Bible, says he repented of making man. And God can't repent but that the Bible describes it in those terms so that we will understand it because those are the only human terms that can describe the strength of God's feeling about what he sees when he sees sin. He looks at it and he's like a father who says, I wish they'd never been born. That's almost what it's like. That's what it's almost saying here. He regretted that he had made man and it grieved him to his heart. Now, we know that God knows all things. He knew what was going to happen. And yet somehow, the Bible clearly tells us that God is not neutral about sin. He does not stand on the outside of it and just brush it under the carpet. He looks at your sin and at my sin, and he is grieved to his very heart. And he regrets. He regrets. The Lord sees, the Lord grieves. And then it says that the Lord speaks. So we've read, the Bible just tells us that he's seen sin. He grieves over it, and then he speaks. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. The moment comes when God speaks. He doesn't remain silent forever. In that passage of the Bible that describes what happened to those people who were drowned in the flood, it doesn't give us any indication about whether Noah had time or whether God told Noah even to tell the people about what was coming. It doesn't tell us that. In 1 Peter, Peter indicates that, they, that that may have happened because he says they did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So there is an indication that perhaps God did speak, although we don't know for definite. But we do know other stories of when God has spoken. When God spoke to the people of Nineveh when he sent, when he sent Jonah to go and cry out to them about about how the sin of that city had come before God. And there are times, certainly in the Bible, where we read that God speaks. He doesn't remain silent forever. And he won't remain silent forever about our sin. 
The day comes when for all flesh he speaks. He will speak. And then perhaps the frightening thing, the most, the most glorious thing and the most frightening thing when I read this passage was this. That the Lord shuts the door. The Lord shuts the door. In Genesis 7 verse 15 it says, They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. You see, the moment does come when God doesn't just see and grieve and speak. The moment comes when the Lord shuts the door. Now, it's glorious the way that he shuts Noah in, because he's rescuing him. But we must also realize that in shutting him in, he shut everyone else out. The day comes when the Lord shuts the door. And Jesus said this too. He used exactly the same sort of phrase when he talked about a story of an owner who's having a, a feast and invites people in. And lots of people who are invited don't come. And then they go out and they gather people who weren't invited. And Jesus said this at the end of that story. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. And Jesus then goes on to describe that for those who are shut outside, they are shut into a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you know, Jesus talked about judgment probably more than he talked about heaven, actually. The Bible is bookended about judgment. Do you know that? It starts right at the beginning of Genesis in this story, and Revelation is full of it. And throughout the Bible, God reminds us of his judgment again and again and again. And yet for us, quite often, it's the elephant in the room that we'd rather not look at and talk about. Do you know, hell and judgment are becoming dirty words even in Christianity. Because surely it's an outdated notion, isn't it? The idea of hell, the idea of judgment, the idea that, that God hates my sin enough to say, one day, unless... Unless something changes, the door will shut on you. And it is a bit outdated. And these days, do you know, people like to paper over it. To make it more palatable. To make the gospel a bit more palatable. Let's not talk about the judgment bit. Let, let's talk about his love. Let's talk about his grace. Let's talk about his mercy. But actually, 
if we don't realize about his judgment, his grace and his mercy don't actually mean that much. Do you know, do you know that? Sometimes we need to be reminded about his judgment to remember again the amazing wonder of his grace and his mercy to us. Because when he looks at us, he says, that our wickedness is great and that every intention of the thoughts of my heart is evil continually. And he's right. He's right. Do you know, sometimes we can struggle with a loving God who allows suffering. I have. Often ask that question, God, if, how can you allow that? If you're a God of love, how can you allow that? Do you know what? I think we should turn that question on its head. And actually what we probably should say to God is, why do you restrain so much wickedness, oh God? Thank you that you do. Because it's in here. It's in here. It was in those Serbs who murdered and raped their next door neighbours who the previous autumn they had shared the harvest with. It was there a couple of summers ago when across this capital city people set light to buildings and robbed and broke up their own community. We shouldn't be asking God, why do you allow suffering? We should be thanking him that he restrains, that his hand of restraint is on so much wickedness and evil. And it's almost as if every now and then he takes his hand off and he lets us see what it would be like if he didn't restrain it. And then he graciously places it back. Do you know what? We should be so grateful that he doesn't do that more often than he does. Why does he do that at all? Well, C.S. Lewis says, says that suffering is God's megaphone to us. It's his megaphone. When he removes his hand of restraint on the wickedness and evil of the, of the world and of men and women, and we see what we're really, really like, it's like his megaphone to us you need to do something about this. This is your destiny. You know, that's exactly what Jesus said. Some people came to Jesus and they said, they told him about some people who'd been making sacrifices and Pilate, it's the only other time that Pilate appears in the Gospels, Pilate mixed their, their own blood with their sacrifices. And I don't really understand what that means, but basically Pilate, slaughtered some of the Jews. And they said to Jesus, were these people, what had these people done that was worse than the other people who haven't suffered in that way? And Jesus said, nothing. And then Jesus told them a story, and he said, well, okay, how about this one? What about the, what about the people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Were they worse than any of you? No. 
but unless you repent, you too will perish. That's what he said. And sometimes we can think that when God takes his restraining hand off and suffering comes, even in the Christian world, we can think that somehow that nation is particularly wicked and God has rained his judgment down. Forgetting that actually the only reason that the same thing isn't happening to us is that he is graciously keeping his restraining hand on the consequence of sin. There's a really good book that's fairly recently come out by um, Francis Chan, and he's written this book about hell. Because like most of us, he doesn't really want to believe it's true. Because most of us would rather not believe it's true. And Francis Chan went about the process of just reading through the Bible and wanting to come to a position where perhaps it didn't say that there's eternal judgment. But he couldn't. And it's a really straightforward book. And if you'd like to find out more about, is this true? Does hell really exist? Does God really judge people if they haven't come to faith in Christ? Is that really true? Then I'd recommend this book called Erasing Hell. This is what he says in it. Francis Chan says, It's taken me 43 years to finally confess that I have been embarrassed by some of God's actions. In my arrogance, I believed I could make him more attractive or palatable if I covered up some of his actions. So I've neglected speaking on certain passages, or I would rush through certain statements God made in order to get to the ones that I was more comfortable with, the ones I knew others would like. And I'm now seeing the ugliness of my actions, like the nervous kid who tries to keep his friends from seeing his drunken father. I have tried to hide God at times. Who do I think I am? The truth is, God is perfect and right in all that he does, and I am a fool for thinking otherwise. He does not need nor want me to cover for him. There's nothing to be covered. Everything about him and all he does is perfect. Do you know, death has been on my mind a lot this week. <laughs> um, John, I hope you don't mind me mentioning. Um, John um, took his first funeral this week. And John's just been spending time with a, a guy who was dying of cancer and um, has been sharing the gospel with him and reached a point where he led him through the process of giving his life to Christ, and we hope and believe in faith that that happened. And do you know what I was, as I was talking to John just about it, and as, talking about the process, and just as he talked about now going over there, or oh, you know, I've had a phone call, they, you know, they, they, think that, they think that Dad's got some questions, I'm on my way. Do you know what, I was so proud of him doing that. Because... Because what we can do so easily, my friends, is we can, we can long for people to have a peaceful death. I remember something my pastor said years and years ago. He said, most people don't die in peace. 
they die in ignorance. And if we're not careful, we can get caught up in the ways of the world and the thoughts of this world, and we can think about making people's passing as peaceful and as non-stressful as possible. And that might mean if I'm visiting someone who's close to the end of their life, well, I don't want to upset them. I, I want to encourage them. I want to speak words of comfort to them. And all of that, of course, is absolutely fine and right. But am I really going to do that if they're being held by a thread over the gates of hell? A man called Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon twice. It's a sermon in this book which um, Dan, Dan lent me a little while ago called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he preached a sermon in his home church about God's judgment and hell. And it had no effect. He, by all accounts, wasn't a particularly um, uh, engaging preacher. In fact, it says in the book that he just read the words of his sermon. And he brought this sermon to his own church, and, and it didn't have much effect, had little effect. And then he was invited to go to another church uh, in uh, Kentucky, or Connecticut, and he went to this other church, and he did the same. He just read the same sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But this time the Holy Spirit breathed on him. And there were people in that church who were gripping hold of their pews for fear of falling into the gates of hell and crying out, what must I do to be saved? He had to stop preaching in the end because the Holy Spirit came and the Holy Spirit lighted on that place and it took what was something in the head down into the heart. And the Holy Spirit has to do that with us about judgment. Because these are things that we have heard so many times before. But do you know, if we only ever stick to a gospel that is about God's love and his grace and his mercy, and boy, do I thank him for those things. And we don't remember that he is also a God of wrath and righteous judgment. Then two things happen. It deeply affects the way we view mission. Do you know what Paul says in one point in the book of Corinthians? Paul says, if we only have hope for this life, we are to be more than pitied. Because actually, do you know, if, if I want to go to people in my workplace and talk to them about Jesus and the gospel and salvation, a lot of them have got quite nice lives. Now, I can talk to them about things like, but, but surely haven't you got a bit of a hole here? Don't, don't you feel a bit of a gap? And they might say, well, yeah, I think we all feel that, don't we? But, you know, I just go out. I, I do a bit of retail therapy. Do you know what? People have got ways of filling that hole. And if the only message I have is that, well, God can make this life so a bit nicer for you, that's no message at all. And, you know, because of that, I think I shy away sometimes from sharing the gospel with people because I think, well, I would never say this and I would never, I would never think these words, but probably somewhere in the back of my mind is, well, I'm not sure they're going to really listen 
because their life seems pretty together, seems pretty nice, actually. I'm not sure that anything I'm going to say is real, you know. How different if actually we are reminded again that this is about eternal judgment. When Jonathan Edwards talked and gave this sermon, he gave pictures about God's restraining hand underneath a rotten floorboard that led over the gates of hell and that the only thing that was stopping some of the people in his congregation from falling right through was God's restraining hand, which he could remove at any time. I told you I thought a lot about death this week. I was reminded also that last month was 30 years since my grandfather died. 30 years ago, some of you weren't born then, some of you were very young then. Do you know I remember it as if it were yesterday? I remember the phone call from the hospital saying he's going downhill, he's deteriorating. And my father was up in the city at work and we called one of our pastors, a guy called Colin Potter, who had a real evangelistic heart, and he dropped everything he was doing and he drove to the hospital. Now, I don't know. I don't know. In those moments, did my grandfather come to faith? I don't know. I hope with all my heart that in those moments when Colin spoke to him, he did. But I don't know. I don't know. Do you know why... God tells us in his story about judgment right at the start of it in the book of Genesis and right at the end of the Bible in Revelation and right through the middle of it. And do you know why he's patient with us? And do you know why his restraining hand is here? It's because he wants none to perish. (coughs) He's patient. But we must be urgent. And it's gripped me this week. It's reminded me of two things. The first is that I take mission so casually. Even with people I love. Even with my extended family. Do you know what? I've started praying for them. I've started praying for my family. I did it actually started praying a few months ago, but boy am I doing it with renewed passion now. I'm praying for my family, the ones who don't know him. Because this is not just about them having a slightly less messed up life, and boy, some of them have a messed up life now. This is about their eternal destiny. And it should make us view mission completely differently if we believe this. And the other thing it does is it reminds us again of the extent of the grace of a God who is that offended by my sin that he is prepared to put in place a rescue plan for me. He is so thoroughly offended by your sin. And at the moment, for some of you in here, the only answer at the moment is the door will shut one day and you will be outside. if you've come to know him and put your trust in him and accepted the blood of the Savior over your life, it means you are safe. Instead of the one being shut out, you are shut in. Like Noah was shut in 
and just as final as that act was for the people who were shut out. It's just as final for you if you love him and you know him. He has shut you in permanently safe. We need to be reminded every now and then of this truth. And you need to come to a position on it. Because you will read books these days, if you read books, that paper over God's judgment. And there are really well-known theologians today in our Christian world who, if you ask them the question, do you think that non-believers will go to judgment? they will paper over the elephant and make it look so much more palatable and appealing. But from my reading of the Bible, that doesn't seem to be true. And so God is gracious to us and he reminds us that one day everyone will give an account to the one before whom everything will be laid bare. And he does it so that we will value what we have and so we will take our responsibility of mission seriously. And if you, this morning, are not sure when and if and when that day comes, and it will come in two ways, be sure of it, it will either come when he returns or it will come when you die. One of the two. And the day will come when he will shut the door. And if you're not sure whether you're going to be on the inside or the outside, then today is the day of salvation for you. Because the Bible says, if today you hear his word, do not harden your heart. You see, God does speak, but he doesn't speak every day. And this could be your day. It could be your only day. So if that's true for you, I want you at the end to come forward and I would like to pray with you. And if you are saved, then today is another day to thank him that you're shut in. That you're shut in. And to consider again that we have the opportunity to get others shut in instead of shut out. Just like John did. Well done, John. Let's pray. Father, we, we, we just thank you for your presence with us today and... Uh, we ask that your Holy Spirit would move head knowledge to grip us again in our hearts. We thank you that it is no coincidence that throughout the Bible you resurrect the story of judgment. And it is a means of grace to us that you do it. It reminds us what we have escaped from. 
it draws us to love you more for the way that you have rescued us and shut us in. And oh God, it should grip us for the mission to go out and preach the gospel to those who are shut out. Father, I thank you that you did not paper over it, but you have again and again through your word reminded us that the day will come when you will stop speaking and you will shut the door. And I pray, Father, that you would grip our hearts with it again, that you would change us, that you would make us, if we know and love you already, fall more in love with you for the fact that though our sins were as scarlet, you've washed them as white as snow and you've shut us in safely. And for those that we know and love who we don't know that truth for, we don't know whether that's true for them, I pray it would grip us again so that we might see the urgency and the seriousness and the weight of sharing the good news of the gospel with those who are perishing. Father, I pray you'd grip us again with it and that your kingdom might advance and expand because you've gripped us with it again. In Jesus' name, amen.